Our scripture lesson tonight comes from um, the good news according to James uh, chapter 1. Many people believe that this is Jesus' own brother. And so we read these words uh, from God to us tonight. Consider it a sheer gift, friends, when tests and challenges come at you from all sides. You know that under pressure, your faith life is forced into the open and shows its true colors. So don't try to get out of anything prematurely. Let it do its work so you become mature and well-developed, not deficient in any way. If you don't know what you're doing, pray to the Father. He loves to help. You'll get this help and won't be condescended to when you ask for it. Ask boldly, believingly, without a second thought. People who worry their prayers are like wind-whipped waves. Don't think you're going to get anything from the master that way. Adrift at sea, keeping all your options open. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Amen. You may be seated. Choosing doors. Choosing doors. This is one of the most difficult things about the Christian life. We love the Lord. The Lord loves us. And there are things the Lord wants us to do. But how will we know? This is to the core of what it is to be a person, to be a human, to be a follower of Jesus. Choosing comes from the core of who we are. Choosing comes from the core of who we are. Any of you all ask the question, where would you like to eat? And then there, it's on, isn't it? It's core to who we are, what you like, what you don't like, the way the Lord has simply Wired you. If you have your sermon notes, I invite you to take those out as we look at how do we discern God's will together? What does an open door look like? What does God want us to do now that we've come to know the Lord Jesus? What, how do we know what to do? You see, one of the great things about God is that God is the one opening the door. So last week, uh, we learned this, that an open door is an opportunity provided by God for you to bless others. That we need to understand. The doors are opened by God for you to bless others. Will you say that with me? Doors are open for what? By God for you to bless others. And the thing is, since that's the case, we no longer have to live under this tyranny of the perfect choice. God can use even what looks like the wrong door. That's your first blank there. God can even use what looks like a wrong door if you go through it with the right heart. Dallas Willard, when I was studying under him, um, just had this beautiful, beautiful metaphor. He talked about God being sort of like this loving, this perfect, wonderful, loving grandfather, where he would talk to the grandkids, and and they'd say, now you guys go play in the backyard. Have a great time. And and they'll say, well, well, what do you want us to do? He's like, well, I want you to enjoy the backyard. Now, don't touch the fence. It's electric. You know, there's wolves on the other side, but go enjoy yourself. And some of the kids do. Some of the kids grab the fence. Other kids, though, are right by the door, and they're like, no, Grandpa, tell us, what do you want us to do? What do you want us to do? What do you want us to do? He's like, go have fun. They're like, kickball, soccer, softball, I want to be in your perfect will. Grandpa's like, I gave you this life. Go enjoy it. Play nice. Don't touch the fence. And it's a beautiful way that God works with us, and so often we can get locked up in this sort of neurotic worry that somehow, you know, if we choose soccer over lacrosse in the backyard, that somehow we've missed it. And that's nonsense. God is for you, always for you, never against you, and he wants what's good in your life. And our lives are filled with doors. Some of them are going to be great, and others of them will be sort of difficult. Perhaps you're facing graduation, and and you're looking for a job. Uh, Maybe you're facing an empty nest. Maybe you're retiring. 
Uh, but you know the word retire isn't in the Bible, right? It's, it's nowhere found in the Bible. You're not ready for death or shuffleboard. There's got to be other doors, right? What might God have next for you? So, when it comes to young people, this, this was kind, of, kind of made me say wow when I read this. We're, we're moving through this book uh, through John, uh, John Ortberg's. Uh, and he writes about a friend of his named Andy Chan, who's a career specialist. And Andy Chan notes that young adults will face, on average, 29 different jobs throughout the course of their lives. 29 different jobs. And in Oxford, research predicts that over the next two decades, about half of the jobs that exist today will no longer exist, simply because of technology. We are going to have door after door after door after door. You can't just go through one door and call it good. That's just not the way uh, the world works. And so the thing is, uh, some of the saddest stories that I've ever heard are about those risks that never get taken, about obedience that never gets offered, about joyful generosity that never gets given, adventures that never happen, lives that never get fully lived. And I just hope that that's not us, uh, that that's not us tonight, that that's not our church uh, actually, there's a whole uh, field of psychology known as the psychology of regret. And one of the most striking findings is the way that regret changes over the course of our lives. When we're young, um, short-term regret is almost always about wishing that we had not done something. That we had not been mean to our sister or our brother. That we had not talked back to mom the night before prom. That we had not uh, done whatever it is. I wish, in my case, I wish that I had not eaten that ostrich on a stick at the Texas State Fair. Really, I wish I had not. But there's this phrase among young people on social media, it's called YOLO. Have you heard of it? YOLO. What's it stand for? You only live once. You only live once. And the Lord gives us these wonderful opportunities. And, and so the thing that happens with YOLO is it's often associated with sort of this reckless pursuit of fun while throwing off the consequences of reason and responsibility. And it's most often used when you have made the unfortunate choice. Well, you only live once, YOLO. But over time, our perspective shifts, doesn't it? And as we get older, we come to regret not those things that we did do, but more often those things and chances we did not take. The word of love that we never spoke when it was needed the chance to serve that we never took, the costly gift that we never gave. It's true, you only live once. And so it begins to shift from regretting the things that we did do to regretting the things that we never chose to do. We begin our lives regretting the wrong things we've done, but we end them regretting the open doors we never went through. But it's tricky, isn't it? Because sometimes you don't really know what it's going to be like until you're on the other side of that door. What do we need to do now so that we're not living in regret later walking through open doors keeps us from future regrets but it's it's tricky will you say that with me walking through open doors keeps us from future regrets but even when you step through those doors sometimes it can get you and some of you all know spring break i had a friend who offered up his home in utah in park city utah and so um john mark we was able to come up from school uh, from um, Texas, where he's in school at Georgetown, Texas, at Southwestern University, our Methodist school down there. And, um, and so we, we went skiing. It was spring skiing, and so the skiing was, eh, you know, slushy in the afternoon, really icy in the mornings. And so we thought, well, this may not be safe. We're not in the greatest shape in our lives. Maybe we should do something else. So as Chantel was sort of flipping through the local flyer, she found that, uh, and we remembered that actually the Olympics were right there in, in Park City, 
Like, oh, that's cool. And so the whole Olympic Park uh, was just down the street. So Salt Lake uh, had held the Olympics in 2002, the Winter Olympics. We're like, oh, that's awesome. And Chantel said, do you realize that for roughly the same amount of money we would spend skiing today, we could do the bobsled at the Olympics? And I was like, wow, I, that always seems cool. I mean, we should do that. You know, that would be great. We've never done that. And, and the three of us could do something we could do as a family. We'll make memories. And so she signed us up. And, and so we, we, we went, and, 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 and they, they sit you down in this room with all the other people that are going to do it. And we came across this sign once the money had been paid. And, and then they show you this. It says, severe injury or death can't occur beyond, beyond this point. Because what we found out in the briefing was that there would be four of you. Uh, there's going to be a pilot that you've never met, that you put your lives in his hands. And uh, he is, you know, an Olympic bobsled pilot. And then you go by order of size. And so it was Chantel in the second seat and then John Mark in the next seat. And that left me in the back. And they said, now, if you want the most severe ride with the most danger and, and pain, be in the back. Because it's kind of like riding a roller coaster. And I tried to talk the other two into being in the back. They would have none of it. So I was in the back. And, and then we said, and I was still, I was excited about it, kind of nervous. But I was like, okay, we can do this. And then they started to take you through, and they would say things like this. Please use the restroom before you get on the sled. Because the pilots have been weed on twice in the same day. People were out of their mind. They just, the G-forces, they simply could not hold themselves. And I started thinking, maybe this isn't such a good idea. YOLO. Oh, no. And then... They said, oh, and we just want you to know that we're starting you down the track a little bit because when we started at the Olympic place, we had two people break their backs on the ride. And they said, oh, and if you turn over, just stay there. We have medical personnel all along the route, and so you don't want to move until they flip you back over. But that's only happened a few times. Now, you'll note that this was hours after we had signed up and paid. And then they take you up and they say, okay, now, now we want you to get a helmet that is very heavy. So this is Chantel and her helmet. And, the, and they tell you to squunch your shoulders like this so your head won't move so that, you know, you won't break your neck. And you're going to go nearly 70 miles an hour down this thing on ice on a fiberglass ship that's like that, that wide. And you press your arms as hard as you can to hold yourself still. And, and I had a great view of the back of my son's head. That was it, 47 seconds of terror. And so this is us on the, on, we finished it. YOLO, you only live once. And you'll see Chantel's very fond of the pilot. She saved, saved our life. Utah Olympic Park, there we all are together. You only live once. But you see, you can walk through the, I'm glad we did it. I will never do it again, ever. I was praying very much in the last few seconds of the ride. Jesus, help me, help me. But you see, walking through the open door keeps us from future regrets. So now, I guarantee you, every time, I want you guys to come watch the Winter Olympics with me. I'll be like, I did the bobsled. Every, every four years, every four years, it'll never get old. Yep, we've done that. We know what that's like. It's terrifying. But is, does, does God really care so much about whether I ride a bobsled or a luge or do the skeleton? No. No. That's all okay. God's will for my life is centered mainly in the person he wants me to become. Not about any particular thing. I think God 
is fine with me doing the bobsleds because it shows love and care for our oldest son who loves to do that sort of thing. John Mark loves that. But it's about the person I'm becoming. Point two is this. God's primary will for you is the person you are becoming. God and I will have all eternity to work on that, and so will you. And so you don't have to worry about missing it. You really don't, unless you choose to reject him. If you don't want to have anything to do with God, then God allows that. But you don't need to worry about whether you're in God's will as long as you're talking to him. Now, not all roads may lead directly to God, but they all belong to God. He knows all the roads. They're in his hands. And God can use even those wrong roads to bring us to the right place. That's a beautiful thing. That's who God is. And God's doors, like his mercies, are new every morning, every day. You have new opportunities. You know, the sad things that happened long ago, friends, God can even take the saddest things and help us have peace with them and turn them into something beautiful, like the cross. Jesus is that doorway, and that cross was a doorway to change death to life. He can take the worst things you've been through and change them if we stay in relationship with him. So our question is not so much do I do X or Y, door number one or door number two, but am I becoming like Jesus? How do I choose the right door, though? How do, I, how do I know? What school do I go to? What job do I take? What, how should I live in? All of those are fine questions, but they're not really the most important questions, are they? I mean, you don't want to end your life and think, oh, I bought the right house. That was good life. I mean, you, you see what I'm saying? Our life should be more than that. It, we're meant for more than that. And, but, so we come to deeper questions like, does God want me to persevere in this difficult situation because I'm supposed to grow? Or does he want me to leave it because God has something else for me? Have you ever thought about um, calling a psychic? You know, as Christians, we're not, we're not really supposed to do that. And, and first of all, I'd like to, for you to think about this. John Ortberg writes this in his book, and I thought it was really good. He says, people call the psychic friends hotline, but if they're psychic friends, shouldn't they call you? I mean, really? If they're really psychic, shouldn't they just be able to call you when you need to know something? If you're going to see a psychic, shouldn't appointments be unnecessary? When you ought to be able to show up, they would know you're coming if it's a real deal. And so the thing is, for people of faith, we dismiss these practices, not just because they don't work, but because of the critical difference between faith and magic. Right? Faith and magic are different. In fact, there's this really weird and fascinating story about King Saul that helps us understand the difference. Saul has rejected God's leadership of his life, and he has chosen the door of power and jealousy and deception and ego. And Saul is desperate now to know what to do because he's stuck. He's stuck in a bad place with the Philistines upon him. In 1 Samuel, it goes like this. I want to share the story with you. It's really odd. Now, Samuel had died, the great prophet, and all Israel had mourned for him and buried him in Ramah, his own city. Saul, the king, had expelled all the mediums and wizards from the land. And when Saul, the king of Israel at the time, saw the army of the Philistines, he was afraid and his heart trembled greatly. When Saul inquired of the Lord, the Lord did not answer him, not by dreams or by Urim or by prophets, because Saul had chosen his own path, not the Lord's. And the Lord wasn't going to waste his breath with somebody who wasn't going to listen anyway. So then Saul said to his servant, Seek out for me a woman who is a medium. That's interesting, isn't it, since he had already dismissed them all from the kingdom. So that I may go to her and inquire of her. His servant said to him, there is a medium at Endor. So Saul disguised himself, catch this, the king of the country is disguising himself, putting on outer clothes, sneaks to this medium in the middle of the night, which is illegal by his own decree. They come to this woman by night, and he said, consult the spirit for me and bring up for me the one whom I named to you. And the woman says this, she says, well, whom shall I bring up for you? And he answered, bring up Samuel for me. Now, you remember, Samuel's dead. 
And so the king of Israel is trying to save himself and his whole country by conjuring up a dead person and asking them for advice. Does this sound like a good idea to you? No. Then Samuel, she actually does it. Samuel appears from the dead and says to Saul, why are you bothering me? Which is great. And Saul answers him, well, I'm in great distress for the Philistines are warring against me and God has turned away from me and answers me no more, either by prophets or by dreams. So I've summoned you to tell me what I should do. Now, friends, this is really instructive. Because if we're honest, this is often what our prayer life looks like. God asks us to do this, we say no. God says, asks us to do that, we're like, no, not really. God asks us to do this, it's not busy, it's not our time, we've got, our kids have this or that. And then when we get in a really bad way, when something huge happens, we're like, oh, never mind, God. And we expect in that moment that everything's going to track all right. And from personal experience, I can share with you that even, no matter how hard I pray, I will not drop 20 pounds overnight. I won't. I guarantee it. Now, I can put on those 20 pounds over two, three, four years or six months or Thanksgiving if I want to, but I cannot get them off in a night. That's not how it works, no matter how much I pray. And, that, and we all have this sort of superstition, magic fate thing that goes on the back of our mind, like, oh, well, God's going to help me. yes. But that help comes in a certain way like, don't eat that, Foster. You know, work out here, Mark. This is what you're supposed to do. And I will help you seek counsel, seek coaching, seek wisdom. In superstition, I seek to use some supernatural force to accomplish my own agenda. That's what, Sam, that's what Saul was doing. He was trying to conjure up his own agenda and pull it even from the dead. And so this is important, friends. Superstition seeks to use the supernatural for my purposes. That's what superstition does. But faith seeks to surrender to God's purposes. I mean, if you're praying, you have to ask the question, God, what do you want from me? Not, hey, God, you're you're a little behind on my agenda. But the honest truth is this, isn't it? That sometimes we're not looking for God's will so much as a guarantee of future outcomes that takes the responsibility off our shoulders. It's great, isn't it? If we can say, well, God just told me to do that. Well, you and I both know that's probably not true. Right? If, if you want to know what God wants you to do, it's in the scriptures. It's all there. Right? Be kindness, mercy, compassion, all the fruits of the Spirit, love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, generosity, faithfulness, self-control. These are all of God. All, all the other stuff is, is much more sketchy. But sometimes when I desperately want God's will, what I'm really saying is, I don't really want God's will at all. What I want is what I want. And, and I want it now. Or it's to offload that anxiety of decision-making. Oh, well, I prayed about it, and, and God told me, you know, that I was going to win the lottery, so, you know, i got to buy some more tickets. Probably not. But notice that human beings are afraid of making decisions. We don't want the anxiety that goes along with the possibility of being wrong. It's a lot easier to put God's name on it. So choosing comes from the core of who we are. And when we truly, when we truly choose, we have no one to blame and nowhere to hide. It, it's thrilling when we get it right, and it scares us that we might get it wrong. And so what God wants, friends, is not for us to conjure up people from the dead and figure out this or that. I mean, it's it's not this big mystery. God wants us, this is point three, God wants us to learn to choose well. He wants you to choose. And he wants you to choose well. He wants you to know his will. He wants you to know his son, Jesus Christ. He wants you to know the Holy Spirit. He wants you to know the scriptures. And from all of that knowledge and wisdom that the Lord is placing in your life, choose well. Choose consistently well. Choose well. 
And if you don't know what to do, James 1, 5 lays it out very simply. If any of you is lacking in wisdom, ask God. Ask God. You don't have to go conjure up some old dead prophet. Ask God directly. You can do that through the Holy Spirit, through Jesus. Because God gives to all generously and ungrudgingly. He loves you. He's for you. And it will be given to you. But you have to be in relationship with him. You have to be honest with him about both those things that you really are thrilled about and those things you're scared about and the fact that it's even hard to choose sometimes. In Philippians, Paul writes to the early church, and this is my prayer, that your love may overflow more and more with the knowledge and full insight to help you determine what is best. Notice that that that's the prayer, is that we are to discern, we are to determine together as community what is best so that the day of Christ you may be pure and blameless. We're to prepare ourselves for Christ's second coming. God wants us to be excellent choosers, friends. God wants us to be excellent choosers. Will you say that with me? God wants us to be excellent choosers. Begin by asking for wisdom. By saying, Lord, I don't, I don't know what to do here. I, I do need your help. But the thing is, we need to ask early and often. We, we don't need to wait till we're so far down the conveyor belt that it's going to be a train wreck no matter what we choose. And friends, you know this. Um, If you've ever been to college and you've graduated from college and you need a certain grade point, you know that by your last semester of college, your grade point's pretty much set. You're not moving it much. And if you have four point all the way into your last semester of college, it's hard to make below a 3.5. Depending on how many hours, it may be impossible. Because you're going to end very well. Conversely, if you've got a whole bunch of zero... You're not making a four point. There's no way around it, no matter how much you pray. It just doesn't work like that. Does this make sense? So I want to encourage you with all that I am to make good choices now, today, in tiny little bits. And the next one, and the next one, and the next one. Because we make decisions, and then the decisions we make, make us. That's our life. It is simply the the whole of all the decisions we make. We make decisions, and then the decisions we make, make us. What I say, what I think, what I eat, what I read, where I go, who I'm with, who I work with, when I rest, all of it. So we go through these doors and we find on the other side, it's the person we've become that lasts forever and ever. And that's what's most important to God anyway, is the person that you're becoming. And the Bible has a word for people who choose doors well. You know what the Bible calls them? Wise. Wise. Not lucky, not wealthy, not successful. Wise. Wisdom in the Bible means that you have the capability of making great decisions. And the biggest difference between people who flourish in life and those who don't is not money, it's not health, it's not talent, or connections, or looks, or anything else. It's wisdom. It's the ability to make good decisions. Many of you all um, will have known Twyla Gray. She was a great friend to me. And I just love Twyla because she was a judge and she made great decisions. Great decisions. And every once in a while, we would talk about a case or something I would need help in with the church. And often she would say something to me like this. and Because I was trying to figure out how to help someone. And she would say, Mark, you know, it's just their picker's off. Their picker is off. And, and, and that made so much sense to me. Because we all have a picker. Right? We all have a soul. We all have choices. And sometimes that soul gets broken. Sometimes that soul gets fractured. And we're, we're not able to make good choices. We need other people to help put us together. We need the Lord to heal us. We need community around us to say, you realize that's a, that's a really bad decision. That, that's, that's not going to end well. 
Your, your picker is off. And the thing is, friends, most of the train wrecks that I've ever seen in ministry would have been completely prevented if they had even asked one person that had even the smallest modicum of sense. Right? I mean, most of the really bad things you see on the news, if anybody had been around them to say, you know what, that's pro- probably shouldn't get in that fight. You don't know how it's going to end. You, you probably should pay your taxes. You probably should keep your mouth shut when you're in your interview with your boss about this. You, you, you know, you might. You might just see how that works out. Just one person in our life. We make decisions, and the decisions we make make us. And the biggest difference between people who flourish in life and those who don't is our picker, the ability to make good decisions, one after another, after another, after another. So point four is this. Practice on small doors. Practice on the little doors now. Galatians 6 puts it like this. Paul writes to the early church there, don't be deceived. God's not mocked, for you reap whatever you sow. You do. If you sow to your own flesh, you're going to reap corruption from the flesh. But if you sow to the Spirit, you'll reap eternal life from the Spirit. So let us not grow weary in doing what is right, for we will reap harvest at its time if we don't give up. So then, whenever we have an opportunity, that's the important part. Whenever you have an opportunity, whenever that is, which is tonight, which is right now, which is today, you've got the opportunity to to show love, to show forgiveness, to be invested, to show kindness, to speak a word of love, to be a person of grace, to help out somebody else in need, to, to bless a child. We always have that opportunity. We're not to wait for some big, grandiose, you know, marker in our life. We're to do the little things now. That's what makes our life. And let us work for the good of all, of every person on the planet, and especially for those of the family of faith. It's really important, friends, and something that we're struggling with in our culture is to let our children decide appropriate age-appropriate decisions. Our little biddies need to learn how to make choices, and they need to fail, quite frankly. You need to let them make a choice and say, hey, I want to eat this lemon raw. Go ahead. They'll figure it out, right? And then the next time you're like, no, I don't, I don't think I want the lemon. Some kids do. But, you know, you never know how that works out. Because at some point, we we have to learn to fail small. Because if you're never allowed to fail small, when you fail way down the line, you're failing big. And you don't know what to do. We have to learn how to make decisions and fail. We also need to make sure that we're not putting on our children adult decisions. Oh, you know, what do you think? You think your dad and I should stay together? You know, we know it might be hard on you if we split up. They're 12. Don't ask. That's not a child decision. That's an adult decision. You see, and, and we struggle with this. We, we don't let the kids do things that they can do, and sometimes we ask them to do things they have no business doing. It's really important that we learn to make decisions for ourselves. We allow our children to make decisions for themselves that are appropriate for the context and the time. And so we make decisions very simply. We recognize the opportunity, we identify the options, and then we evaluate what's going on. And then comes the hard part. There comes a day that you have to choose. You have to go through the door. You have to go through the door. And it may go great, it may not. And you have to learn. You learn. You learn. But it's getting harder and harder to learn, isn't it? Because there are so many choices. Have any of you all ever been to the store? You know there's like 175 different brands of salad dressing these days. Way more than you need. Have you ever been? Maybe you can tell me. I want to show you. Anybody know where that is? Cheesecake Factory. Are you kidding me? Have you seen that menu? Oh my gosh. I mean, I think War and Peace is shorter. I mean, it's forever and it gets harder. And, and we get locked up, we get paralyzed because there's so many choices. 
Matter of fact, they did a study um, of people who were offered to invest their pension money, and they were less likely to invest when they had more options. It just, it just overwhelmed them. They didn't know what to do, even if their company offered matching funds. They just, they just couldn't decide. They couldn't make sense of it. It was just too much. And in the ancient world, they didn't have that sort of problem in the same way that we do. But there's wisdom in the ancient world. And, and what the ancient world teaches us is to simplify our lives so we have less decisions to make. And, and the thing is, we need to understand that every time we make a decision, it drains us. It takes a toll. It takes emotion. And so we need to decide what decisions are ours and what decisions are others. Some of the most miserable people I've ever met in my life are people who are trying to make decisions for everybody around them. Just drained and miserable and tired. We need to have fewer decisions for ourselves. Because here's, here's the kick in the pants, friends. That I've seen people make terrible decisions when they were drained and tired and discouraged or afraid that they would have never made otherwise. So never try to choose the right course of action in the wrong frame of mind. Never try to choose the right course of action in the wrong frame of mind. Will you say that with me? Never try to choose the right course of action in the wrong frame of mind. Philippians 4.7 um, is very, very instructive here. We need to wait for the wisdom and peace of Christ. And the peace of God which surpasses all understanding will guard your hearts and minds in Christ Jesus. So if you have a big life-changing decision to make, wait for the peace. Wait for the peace of Christ to come. Have other people praying for you. Sleep on it and wait for the peace of Christ. I've seen very, very few good decisions made in angst and worry and upset and tiredness. We all need that peace. We all need that peace. Now, before you leave here tonight and you think, well, my pastor's helping me make sure that I've got no problems in my life. That is not what I'm trying to do. Point five is this. Friends, every one of us, we need problems in our life. We do. God calls us to be problem solvers in our world. We need a God-sized problem worthy of our very best energies. We all need a God-sized problem. And if you don't have one, your current problem is you don't have a problem. We're called to be a part of God's kingdom, which is to work on the world. When God calls us, he calls us to face a problem. The standard word for the condition of being truly problem-free is dead. If you've got no problems, then you're not really living. So the question is, do you have a problem worthy of your best energy, worthy of your life? Do you have anything in your life worth giving your life to? So it's a great question to ask the Lord, isn't it? Just ask Jesus tonight. What problem in your world would you like to use me to address? What is it that you want me to do? A number of years ago, the Lord absolutely pained me. We've always been Westsiders here in Edmond, you know, living on the west side over here. And um, we, we love it. We love being West Edmond people. But what we noticed was all of the sort of big uh, stuff in the summertime Water sports and all that was either over at Pelican Bay or all the way down at Whitewater. And all of it was fairly expensive, uh, at least $8 a pop. And what we looked in is there were a lot of folks in our community that didn't have the income to do those sorts of things. And so I kept talking to everybody I could about a spray ground. We want to have a spray ground at Acts 2. We want to spray ground this, spray ground that, spray ground this, spray ground this. And it didn't really dawn on me, but about two weeks ago, I had a friend of mine who I was in leadership Edmund uh, with. He stopped by the church, and he said, Mark, I just want you to know how proud I am that you got your spray ground. And I was like, what? We don't have a spray ground here. He goes, no. You wore everybody out about that stupid spray ground. We've got one at Kelly now. 
He said, our leadership Edmund team and everybody else, and it's right where it needs to be. It didn't need to be on your property anyway. It's right where it needs to be. Congratulations on your spray ground. I was like, huh, cool. That's great. That's how that stuff works. I don't know if that's true or not, but I'll take it. And that'd be awesome if, if our town has a spray ground because God just put that on our heart and I just wore out anybody who would listen to me about that. But friends, we don't see these things very often with our own eyes. We need help. We need others to see things for us clearly. So um, as, in closing, I want to invite you to do this. Ask others. Ask other people around you that you love and trust and love and know you and want what's best for you. Ask them, could you speak wisdom into my life? Could you give me 30 minutes once a month to just tell me what you see in my life? I, I want to do this. Does that sound right to you? It's very important. You see, a coachable spirit is a core to wisdom. That's your, really your last blank there. A coachable spirit to where you just say to your family of faith, you know, I think the Lord's asking me to do this. Do you think that's right? This is what I'm thinking. How does that sound to you? You'd be amazed at the wisdom that God will give you through your community. And finally, friends, just know that we're not trying to conjure up ghosts or wisdom from the dead. We are talking about wisdom that comes in the person of Jesus. Wisdom came in the person of Jesus. And people in Israel knew what their problem was. It was Rome for them. A lot of times we think we know our problems and we think we know the answers. They thought they had a few options. Door number one was to overthrow Rome because they hated them. That's what the zealots thought. Door number two was to withdraw from Rome in contempt, a group called the Essenes. And door number three was to collaborate with the Romans in self-interest like the Sadducees did. But Jesus, wisdom itself, God himself comes and he doesn't do any of those. In sacrificial love, he reaches out to the world and changes the entire world. John 10, 9 says it this way. Jesus says, I am the door. And by me, if any man enter in, he shall be saved and shall go in and out and find pasture. Jesus is the most important door. He is the ultimate door. And he is here to give us grace and wisdom and power through the community if we will receive it with our teachable spirit.